Right, you're listening to Funatsu. I'm here with Joni Kerr. Uh, she's a uh, an instructor at Guam Community College, uh, marine biologist, right? I teach marine biology and chemistry. Nice, yeah. So, and um, she's here today because uh, um, one of the things that's happening uh, recently is a renewed interest in the fight for litectin or uh, retidian. So, um, uh, Joni's here to talk about what kind of spurred um, uh, reopening this. This uh, this issue that's uh, really never been closed and is ongoing right now, and uh, what spurred that on? Um, even after our islands are sacred, tried to tackle this a couple years ago. So, Joni, uh, you want to talk about uh, your background a little bit and your interests? Okay. Yes, I I teach science at Guam Community College, and um, it's marine biology and chemistry. And on the side for for fun, I guess, is I, I also volunteer with the Guam Nature Alliance, and I've taken people on walks through uh, limestone forests, uh, tours of a mangrove, um, and uh, participated in outreach, educational outreach about uh, how to protect our natural resources. And I guess coming from that background, and this is something that um, could be surprising to some people, but I wasn't always into our natural resources. And uh, but going and being a teacher um, and having to, um, to learn about you know what this tree is and what that tree is and and all these different organisms that we find in the marine environment or in a limestone forest. Um, kind of deepen that interest in me and and so I am now really heavily into protecting our resources uh, with a passion so what spurred my interest in uh, latexin or retidian is one of my friends uh, actually used to work for one of the agencies and I can probably say no more than that but she alerted uh, Linda Tetro and I about possible uh, shortcomings that she found with the military's, um, let's say, EIS or plans to uh, turn uh, the cliff line above Retidian Refuge into a firing range, and so there were some of the some of the details really alarmed her. Um, for instance, there the fact that there was all this time and effort and money, a large amount of money spent on uh, declaring that that area critical habitat for um, uh, endangered species of butterflies, the the fanihi, endangered plant species. And she just couldn't see the, you know, why why are they doing this to um, this area that should have been, that should be, should have been, uh, remained uh, should have stayed protected, and 
So this, she sent us some more details, and we actually didn't get together until last summer to talk about this. But she was actually hoping that Linda and I would kind of pick up the torch and and form some sort of a protest or some sort of an awareness about that, right? In in their plans to uh, turn the the cliff line above the above Ritidian refuge and wildlife refuge into a firing range. So one of the um, another one of the issues was that there was a fence that the military built and. And that was what we call the million-dollar fence, and that was supposed to be part of the uh, um, the effort to keep in danger, uh, to keep invasive species out, to to try to keep that area uh, protected from, let's say, ungulates like the deer and the pigs, and and that would protect um, the the butterfly host plants. Um, and so our friend was really alarmed that uh, this fence was going to be taken down. It had to be taken down because of the, they had to, re- to configure that area for the, for the range. Um, so she, there isn't any uh, real, um, how should we say, protocol or procedure laid out by the military, um, what they plan to do with these butterfly host plants, and, and are they going to send people in there to rescue butterflies we we just don't know uh the the thing is that is that that area is probably the the has the highest population of um of the uh eight spot butterfly Mm. and so the and the host plants are really critical because they don't they don't grow easily anywhere Mm. else but a limestone environment and the thing about limestone forests as well is that once you you take out all the plants and the substrate, it, it will never go back to what it was before. And that's something that, uh, I mean, truthfully, this is, something, this is something that's happening in other areas of our island, and, and that's a problem as well. But we felt that this is something that we could, we could try to control with the military, maybe. It's such a big machine, such a big... Um, Organization to go against, but um, we thought that maybe there there could be a way to do this. We're not quite sure how that's going to get all laid out with this uh, with with what we're organizing right now, but we're hopeful. So, uh, Sabina, did you want to introduce yourself? Uh, um, yes, uh, my name is Sabina Perez. Uh, I'm a teacher at Simon Sanchez High School, and um, I'm just recently joined this group, Save the Texan. Um, so, uh, my my connection to La Texan is uh, definitely um, this love of nature and love of the, what's unique to Guam and the Mariana Islands. So one thing that I learned late in life, and I encourage everybody to explore, even um, basically is uh, the limestone forest. And Guam used to be 50% or basically half our island was limestone forest at one time. And so now we have approximately 10% of those forests left. And a lot of this limestone forest is on is 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 is, is within the fence line, mm-hmm. and so what we're going to see is a, a continual, uh, basically a decimation of our limestone forest. And like what Joni was re- saying earlier is that once you destroy it, you can't bring it back. Um, what's unique about the limestone forest is that, is that it's evolved over many many years so that it can um, exist on a substrate that doesn't have doesn't retain water. And, you know, plants don't get consistent water on, um, you know, on a 
hourly basis. So how is it that these plants can survive with the, a lack of rainfall? Mm-hmm. And um, once you destroy this habitat, um, you can't rebuild it. And this is something nature has created over many, many years, even before the first tomorrows were able to live here. So it's because of their existence that allows us to develop our culture here on this island. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's environmental, it's cultural. Um, and also for me, I'm, I'm a, a descendant of the um, the neighboring uh, area, Hanapsin and mm-hmm. Taragi. And that area is also g- going to be affected. If you look at the maps, um, the firing range, the safety danger zones are mm-hmm. also going to affect the, that, that area, the Hanapsin area uh, especially. Uh, of course, especially the Texan area, but it also would impact the the neighboring beach, which is Hanapsin. Mm. And um, so there's a lot of connections for me uh, as far as saving the Texan. Um, you know, this idea is that uh, with the destruction of our land, it's also destroying our cultural heritage yeah. because how we survived in this island definitely is connected to uh, what is in existence here and how we were able to interact with our environment in a way that we can sustain ourselves. So if we lose that, we lose a sense of who we are as a people. Um, and to me, this is, it's very important that we stop this development. Um, as I've heard that it's, it's not necessary to develop this. It's actually, um, it's redundant. There's, mm-hmm. there's a certain redundancy to these training areas. Yeah. And why are we destroying something that's pristine when it's not needed? Um, and we're, we're um, you know, there's so much to lose and so little to gain from this. Right. From the military perspective, there's, there's little to gain from this because they have other areas. I'm not saying that it's okay to destroy another area, but why destroy something that uh, is going to affect, impact us for, as a people, Chamorro yeah. people? You know, that's interesting. Um, so on that note, I, I'm not sure if you guys uh, are comfortable talking about uh, the, the meeting this week. So her name is Dr. Larissa Ford, and she's the project leader for the uh, Mariana's Refuge uh, areas uh, within the CNMI and Guam, as well as the monuments. So she's in charge of, you can say, pretty much everything with respect to these refuges and the monument itself. So, so she was in. She had, her name had been mentioned to me by um, two or three other people, and they suggested that I meet with her and and that she could give uh, at least an overview of what would be happening to the refuge, uh, perhaps. And um, and so with the second meeting of, uh, shall we call it, say for Tidian for now, yeah. uh, she she agreed to come to the meeting. And uh, now Linda Tetro and I did anticipate something might occur, some um, uh, confrontation, uh, but we thought that that we just didn't anticipate the level that it would right. it would rise to, and uh, so we were a little bit unprepared. I thought myself because I hadn't have not ever been in that situation. But our our rationale for inviting her was just to get the overview on the refuge, right. and and perhaps even gain an ally. Um, it is Fish and Wildlife Service. And they've been designated to be in charge of the refuge. They are dealing with a military, the military, and 
according to her, her statements at the meeting, they don't want to give the refuge over to the Navy. Uh, it remains to be seen how, you know, how uh, things really play out, especially with this administration. But um, in any case, I think she did wonderfully giving that presentation until it kind of devolved into almost a shouting match. And But I'm ver I was really glad that Maneka and Ursula Herrera were there. Maneka Flores, I think they are, they are, they might be trained facilitators as well, and I'm not a trained facilitator, and I've never actually had to deal with a situation like that. But I'm really hoping, I, and you're right, there are these different interests, uh, uh, grassroots groups, and they come from different backgrounds and different, have totally different experiences, and the pain that it's it's obviously pain uh, that they feel the the. The land to a Chamorro is 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 practically everything besides the family, right? So, to have that that it's the heritage, it's their culture that's being ripped out of you, your family, and so the anger and the pain is understandable. Um, but we're hoping that to channel that energy, that 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 anger into something uh, that we can that we can use and. Uh, to resolve this situation first about the refuge. Yeah. Um, how are we going to keep the military from denying us access to the refuge, for one thing? Uh, and I think I'm not really sure how we're going to deal with any ownership issues. I see that as kind of the Mount Everest, mm -hmm. the summit of the mountain, and yeah. we are just at the bottom. And uh, that's something that's, that's just going to have to play out somehow. I'm not sure how to handle that. Carlisle Corbin, who uh, is an international policy um, consultant, and he's worked on uh, the self-determination issue for a very long time from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, this is something he calls uh, the island ethos, and it's uh, the phenomenon that uh, not just Chamorros and uh, Pacific people, but um, that Native people all over the world uh, have this uh, intertwined uh, connection to, with the land, and that's why it's so important and why it's so why it's such a huge part of uh, activism movements wherever you go, where there's Native people. So, but it's interesting that uh, we acknowledge that there's pain, and uh, because of the such a, a strong connection to the land and one's family. But um, yeah, Sabina's here. She's uh, she's level-headed, and uh, there were no emotional outbursts uh, at the meeting. But uh, you you share a similar connection to the land as well. So, uh, is there anything that you could you could say about? Um, um, maybe being influenced by uh, the pain and uh, the hurts of uh, injustice as an indigenous woman and uh, being able to channel that through the sciences and what we're doing now? Tough question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as far as my connection, um, I mean, it's just as far back as my grandfather. He he was a copra farmer, so in Taragi, that's why you see a lot of coconut trees there. Um, they basically, the, the connection is that that was our livelihood and our source of wealth. And it still is today, but we've lost that connection through uh, capitalism, um, this consumerist society, and we've lost connection to our environment, uh, which we really badly need to reconnect with. Um, so uh, what was the second part of that question? <laughs> well, uh, so you, you talk about your, your heritage mm -hmm. and your connection to Hinapsen, okay. but... Um, I mean, there's a there's obviously a way. There's a way because um, this isn't your first rodeo, mm -hmm. right? And so you you've been able to channel that constructively, in in your case through the sciences. 
Uh, well, I'm more so uh, education. Uh-huh. Um, I don't consider myself a you know scientist because yeah. I you know I didn't get my degrees in, in um, research. Uh, but uh, how I uh, channel it is um, basically it's every every teacher has their values and they try to share ex- express those values in certain ways. Um, for me, um, science. Um, Unfortunately, for most indigenous people, science has been very harmful to them because they've been subjects of research. And oftentimes, the research that comes out of it doesn't benefit indigenous communities. So um, the, the, ch- uh, the change that has happened with um, the sciences, and this is not just you know hard sciences, but also social sciences, um, that there, there's more questioning coming from um, not just the methodologies, but um, the purpose of getting this information and questioning the information that they're getting because oftentimes we're, we're portrayed negatively as indigenous people due to the science research. Um, so that's something that I'm working out, working on actually is what, what type of research will benefit our communities and not be um, appropriated for somebody else's um, um, what is it, enjoyment and benefit. So I think that has to ch- that type of uh, paradigm has to change here um, because I see, unfortunately, a lot of the funding um, that goes with a lot of the research here, it's still still stuck in that old paradigm where it's aligned with Western ideology. And we don't see much accountability. For me, um, I don't see at the grassroots level necessarily the connection from all the research that's being accomplished. Um, and uh, so really we need to kind of change our uh, priorities where the, the efforts, the resources, the human resources that we're engaging in research, uh, we need to start with the question is how is this going to benefit our community? Mm. So that to me is a work in progress for myself uh, especially and possibly hopefully for other scientists. Yeah. Well, okay, so when you and Linda were, um, were brainstorming about the issue, um, what were some of the things that you guys had in mind? Or is this really just the beginning of it all, like uh, pulling together? Yes, it's still very early days. So Linda and I were involved with organizing um, uh, people about an awareness about the culvert issue, the Fujita culvert issue, right? So then we, we um, and now this issue is something quite different because of all the different interests uh, out there. Um, and I should also mention, too, it's not just Lynn and I, it's also Zita Pangolina, and she, she's very key to this. Uh, can't forget Zita. Zita actually called everybody that she knew. She's got a wide network and actually brought all those people together for the first meeting. And honestly, we, we weren't really sure how it was going to go, and we just thought, let's see what happens with this meeting. Mm-hmm. And what was really cool about the meeting was we had leaders from some of the grassroots orgs and uh so there's victoria lola leon guerrero maniaca uh flores um uh, I, I can't remember all their names but kathy mccollum was there as well so um and and then therese terlahi also showed showed up senator therese terlahi and from that first meeting uh we had we we kind of got an idea of how to how to do this uh, went back to the drawing board after the meeting um, and looked at um, 
possibilities, and it was actually, uh, I think it was uh, Victoria who suggested these, these forming these committees, and so that laid the groundwork for the next meeting. So now we, so for the second meeting that that happened this week, this was going to be the work meeting. Yeah. So, so these four committees, uh, one was legal, the other one is education and outreach. Um, Act, action and I think it was yeah. something at, at the action committee events and action or something like that and then there's uh, research the research and education. and education okay so these four committees uh, and, and er- everybody after after things had calmed down uh, we got to work split them up and now we had only 30 minutes <laughs> but I think um, 30 minutes we we just flew by but all the committees ended up with at least two things to do two tasks and, and as well as leaders or co-chairs for the committees and I think that was a lot <laughs> to get done in the second meeting and and so now these these committees are supposed to go get together before the next big meeting and they're gonna we're gonna meet uh, I, I'm in the research and education, and we're going to meet next week, Wednesday, and and kind of get more uh, detailed about what we're going to do. So, so so far, that's the way it's going to go. And I think what we what we're going to try to identify is the path. How are what uh, and also what are the issues that we want to? What do we want? What are the things that we can practically? And reasonably expect to to deal with and to handle. I think I think that's really important. And um, to me, I am practicality, and you know, it's it's something that's got to be doable, manageable, and and reasonable. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that's where I see it going, um, laying it out there, and we're hoping uh, to. Uh, let's say spur interest through uh, like one of the ideas was to have hikes educational hikes at Latexin um, uh, to bring people on there look at the, the caves um, and a wave I think that was the other idea uh, also reaching out to the CNMI group that's protesting Pagan up uh, yes the uh, using Pagan Island or or even um, Tinian and as a uh, for for exercises, uh, we that's another important thing. We we hope to connect with them because uh, we see those issues in the CNMI as the same as the Rutidian issue, and the military has tried to chop things up and separate things out, and it's really difficult to 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 attack those yes. things, to handle those things piecemeal. So if we can try to connect with earth justice in that movement the suit i th- i think that um that would be really really important a successful you know putting all that together it's interesting when you ask questions like uh, why is the cnmi issue and the guam issue uh, why are these separate to begin with and how why are they being dealt with separately um, like I would always like my, my brain always goes back to uh, because we're a colony, like because of our political status statuses for both the CNMI and us. So yeah, that, that's just one critique that I that I would have. Uh, but it's certainly interesting to to see how uh, we can 
how we can approach earth justice and uh, uh, what sort of um, response we can we can get from them as well. Well, I think so. they're actually trying to, to, to put it together as well. Mm-hmm. So they've actually called for a, a setting aside of two records of decision that, ha- that deal with the buildup. Mm-hmm. And so that's still being, um, that's still on the table trying, they're um, being negotiated or um, how it's, it's going, it's working through the, through the, through the court system or the judge. But uh, if those two records of decisions get set aside, there, I think that there goes the buildup, because the buildup is what's driving uh, using the you know the, the firing range and exercises at Rutidian and I mean um, in uh, Tinian and uh, Pocket. One of you, you mentioned um, holding hikes up there, which is an awesome idea, and that's one of the things I loved um, about We Are Guahan um, when they were fighting the Pocket issue. Um, I was a GCC student back then, uh, 2008. 2008 and 9 and um you know just actually being able to go to these places because uh, that's one of the critiques that i've heard about retidian why it's so hard is because uh people most people haven't been up there and they haven't experienced the beauty of it and um sabina um knows that i, I used to work with a uh, sea grant um back in 2013 2014 and um i actually i was fortunate enough to actually visit one of the one of the caves that aren't frequented by most people i think there's only like one or two uh researchers that go in there um like once or twice a month and uh other than that it's untouched and it, it was mind-blowing like uh the water was uh pristine um not like when you when you go to pocket of course it's a it's a frequent tourist attraction and of course uh where humans go, they leave uh, their footprints, so crumbs and uh, trash, and and naturally there's uh, there's bugs in there, there's cockroaches and what have you. So, it's it's a little harder to be at ease when you go to um, the Pocket Cave. But um, man, when I went to one of the, one of the caves at Retidian, uh, it was it was something else. I had never seen anything like it, and to think that it's in it's here on our own island, like. So the hikes are a great way to get people to know what they're missing out on and to know what's at stake if uh, the military is successful in um, taking those lands. I know we're, we've talked about um, the Serianthes, right? There's only one growing on island? Yes. Uh, so that's the only mature tree in the ground um, on Guam, and it's in Chamorro. It's called and Lagu. Uh, and there are individuals growing in um, Rhoda, um, but let's see. I, I think that the the reason why Hudson Lagu has been um, it's down to the one is its its wood was used for um, building things, and so um, there was that that. And then it's it might even have suffered the fate of other trees or other trees uh, that uh, need a go between in order to 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 grow. So an agent, for instance, like a bird, would have to eat the seed, and then that seed goes through the, the system, gets sco- s- scratched, or I can't remember the term they mm. use, but um, when the bird poops out the seed, it's yeah. ready to, to germinate, right? But of course, there's less birds now, right? Mm. Yes, so. yeah. So we've lost uh, many birds due to the, the brown tree snake. Mm-hmm. But the, so the last Hodson Lagu, uh, Serianthes nelsonii, now, and the scientific name also has to be uh, uh, stressed because Nelsonia comes from the Nelson family, and then Nelson, the, that last name, uh, their their um, 
I, th I can't remember. Um, I think he was the director of Department of Agriculture at one time, mm -hmm. a long time. But he was definitely a, a scientist, scientist, a biologist, I guess. But he, so he, so this tree that's named after him is a legacy for the Nelson family. Mm -hmm. And to think that this one, this last tree, it's going to be. The military says they're going to place a buffer zone around the tree. But, okay, so they put a buffer zone around the tree, but then what, what they're doing outside of that buffer, buffer zone is they're clearing foliage, the vegetation, away. And uh, if you look at the science, this is something that they, they, they refer to as fragmentation. So, so getting rid of the, um, the, the majority of the vegetation around this tree, it, it's going to be subject to um, uh, insults. So, for instance, the wind, <laughs> you know, that's another, that's something that could stress it. Or um, even the, f who knows about the firing, you know, yeah. something could go awry. We don't know. So with fragmentation, the idea is that um, our, our ecosystem is so fragile in a way that everything has evolved in a way that as it exists now, it, uh, they're meant to, to thrive and any any effect, any stress placed on the way it is, it could have uh, detrimental impacts. Right? Sure, it's it's like you're you're knocking out things in the forest. You're you're breaking up um, connections within the forest, um, but that makes it easy for um, in these like, empty spaces. Let's say because you're you're denuding it of vegetation, those empty spaces now become uh, free for invasive species to come in. Um, and that makes things vulnerable um, that are still there, let's say, in endemics, uh, species. Uh, the host butterfly plants, for instance, um, uh, they could be, um, how do you say, uh, vulnerable to invasive species or vulnerable to, to just um, the effects of, the, of, let's say, the weather mm -hmm. and so on. So... That fragmentation is, is just not going to. It's just not going to work. Um, so, in large areas of the, or in certain areas of the of the states, for instance, they've they've set aside um, certain spots. Let's say for um, protecting um, a certain bird, like um, an owl, for instance. I can't remember the exact name of the owl, but mm. but. Um, they were worried about fragmentation occurring because you have these spots where the owl has been seen, but then if you have these um, empty areas outside, how, how does the owl move around? I mean, once it, once it comes out of this area that it is, and then um, it's vulnerable to predators or, and other things, and, and so fragmentation has been shown to, to really weaken an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any challenges as far as uh, um, educating people about these issues? And um, let's see, like actually um, translating that to movement and support for things like uh, Save Latexin or? Um, when, uh, yeah, whenever, like I was involved in another campaign and um, what I did is I just provided the message and it's up to what people, it's up to people what they want to do with that message. So um, if we can present the message in a way that's passionate and truthful, and 
I feel that people will connect with it. So it really depends upon um, that. Mm. What about at um, like college level students, Joni? Um, yeah. Do you see like a sort of um, a disregard almost for for the natural? environment on Guam when, when kids walk in, or I shouldn't say kids, but when students walk into the classroom as opposed to when you begin instruction? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that I would call it a disregard as much as perhaps an ignorance. So um, they may have not had the opportunity to, to actually see a limestone forest. Uh, and uh, we take care of that <laughs> right away. I do I do uh, a field trip into a limestone forest, even though I teach marine biology, and I, I call it the ancient coral reef. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about ecosystem services of what this forest offers. Uh, it used to be a reef, and there are different ecosystem services that a reef office offers. Um, and now that it's transformed into a forest, how, how does that... Um, how do those services change, and do we still have a connection between the forest and the ocean and so on? And, yes, of course, we can always find that connection. I let them think about the connection. But um, once they've got the idea, I think that they've been exposed in, to these places, and um, many students I have, they, they say, I've never been here. I've never – I don't know what it is. It, it, there, there could also be a cultural um, issue and – that might be um, fear of the jungle. So, for instance, um, I think the the concept of the Tautamona is still very much alive in some families, and and so I I do take care of that. We when we get to the forest, we ask permission, and they are so comfortable after that. <laughs> they so feel so much better. Yes, yes, Miss. Please ask for permission before we go in. And once once we go in and we start talk, giving the stories, I, get, I give the stories about um, different trees that we come across or um, let's say if we see different limestone formations and what are we walking on right now? And and then we get to the cliff and then what, what does this cliff mean? Where what, what did this used to be when it used to be a reef? You know, so... So I think once they once they learn these things, they get an, I think they develop an appreciation for the forest, and some of them even say they want to go back. They go back and they visit. Interesting. So have you guys found a way, especially uh, you, Sabina, um, like uh, a way to to change that to a way to get uh, more uh, youth into the natural environment? Have you found a way to? Uh, tackle that and maybe change these uh, um, popular cultural norms of, uh, you know, uh, seeking an urban, a more urban lifestyle or a more suburban lifestyle as opposed to uh, being more in tune with uh, nature? Unfortunately, I haven't done a lot of field trips, and I think that's the key to for them to get connected. Um, yeah, so I'm still working at it as yeah. a teacher, right? Interesting. Yeah. I think it's a little harder in high school, right, to yeah. get field trips organized. Right. There's and liability issues. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm teaching chemistry now, so it's, oh. it's a little more difficult to connect it to the <laughs> curriculum. Yeah. But so that, which means I have to do more work if I want to, um, you know, work with my colleagues in biology or other courses that are more life science or life science courses. Um, yeah, it would have to be something additional than what I'm responsible for at mm-hmm. school. Interesting. Yeah. 
So um, I think Rebecca Garrison uh, told me that you are the water expert. And um, I think, uh, yeah, it, obviously she might be uh, exaggerating, of course, but um, I think what she meant was that the uh, um, Texan effort wasn't your first rodeo. And uh, have you been involved in other um, activism um, efforts? Uh, yeah, in 2003, um, mm -hmm. I was living in, um, actually I was living in the States, and uh, uh, I heard about water privatization in one of my permaculture, a permaculture course in San Francisco, and so I didn't know what water privatization was. I thought, it, you know, it sounds very bland. What is that? And then I saw um, what happened in Cochabamba, Bolivia, and how their water was privatized by Bechtel, and what happened was uh, basically, um, people cannot access clean water, cannot access water. And so um, after that, that was in June of 2003, and then um, I ended up talking to my brother who was living here in October 2003, and I learned that Guam was about to privatize their water system. And so I, I thought, oh, my God, this is, this is a disaster. So I started writing to the senators. I, I wrote to the CCU board members, and I said, do not do this. This is a really bad policy got no response and so I said okay uh, I'm going to take a three-week vacation to Guam and I'm going to um, so if it's not working at the upper levels then I might as well try it at the grassroots level so what I did is on a three-week vacation I I went to all the I, uh, I arranged meetings with the different um, villages to, to give um, talks about water privatization and the dangers of it um, I went to schools I went to I went to talk shows um, and this was around the time of Labor Day picnic, so I went around and talked to all the employees at the Labor Day picnic, got 100 signatures about, um, you know, no to privatization of water. And then I had to go back to San Francisco to work. Mm -hmm. And in, the, in that mean, in that, during that time, um, the message took hold, the community took hold of that message, and they went with it. And so that year was a key year because they had a re-election of the CCU board. All the board members were for privatization, so this was at the time of the Camacho administration. Everything was privatization, mil militarization. Mm. And so um, everybody was for privatization. And then when I left, there was a huge uprising by the community. And in that process, they did not reelect two of the CCU board members. Uh, the two board members that came in were Tom Matta and Gloria Nelson. And they did not, they did not sign on the privatization, and therefore the second largest privatization ever in the U.S. failed. And so now we're here today. Thankfully, the uh, GWA is not privatized, and it's working more towards a public entity, or it's, at least it's not privatized by Bechtel, mm. by these large corporations that are just going to make uh, water more difficult to, to have here on Guam. Wow. So, um, yeah, that it was really... Um, I never really saw myself in a way as an activist I just wanted to get the message out I was just the messenger mm -hmm. and the people of Guam is the one there was a lot of people behind the scenes that really made this happen yeah I was gonna ask yeah. uh, it, it it almost sounds like you're like a one-woman army you know? um, <laughs> well, well what was the what was the scene like yeah well then? it's interesting because I got a lot of support back in San Francisco I would uh, create my presentations it was very fact-based and I got a lot of support from people back in San Francisco and then when I came here you know, to be honest, a lot of not not a lot of people came to my meetings. Mm -hmm. So I'm really happy that the message took. <laughs> yeah. And um, and I think a lot of it had to do with when people communicate. They have dialogue at home. They they hear it. They talk about 
it to their friends and it expands to other people and people at the time so they privatized GTA so GTA was still a public entity mm-hmm. and they, they GTA got privatized GWA was on its way and then people just got the message not our water yeah right so wow. um, yeah I'm going to point something out because that's really awesome nowadays you have social media to carry the message far and wide but you didn't I don't think social media no is. in fact I'm not tech savvy <laughs> at all so right. back then so that's and kind I, of amazing and that I you still managed think to do the that. word of mouth actually still has a lot of power here on Guam I know a lot of the younger generation they're very tech savvy and mm-hmm. you know Twitter and I'm I, I don't do WhatsApp I, yeah. I'm not in, in any of those things but I still believe we we, we could merge both definitely mm-hmm. when when we do mm-hmm. outreach um you know, don't forget mm-hmm. the normal ways of communicating, the traditional ways of community com- yeah. communicating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know you're you're probably being modest, but that sounds that was an amazing feat. I think um, being able to to activate people to uh, to a decision, a consensus that um, water privatization is bad. So mm-hmm. that's a, that's awesome. Um, and yeah, even. Well, um, I, I just want to also add that, you know, after that, I was able to uh, really get in touch with, um, um, you know, de- decolonization. Right. Because why are we trying to privatize our water? We must be really desperate to do that. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because the lack of uh, power to control our, our destiny. Mm-hmm. So this is where I connected to, um, you know, decolonization. Um, so really, a lot of this, the militarization of our resources, it's all related to um, our lack of power over our own island. Mm-hmm. So it's very much connected to self-determination. Yeah. You know, um, that's interesting that you brought that up. Uh, yesterday I had on uh, Tony Babalta, who of course uh, ran against uh, Madeline Bordalio for uh, Guam Congress, Congress representative. So, uh, and he was talking about, um, you know, uh, economic development and how uh, because we're a colony, um, America decides how much we can develop our economy. And so in a sense, uh, we, we're suffering because we're allowed to suffer and we can do no more so long as uh, our administrator of the United States um, says it's okay and it's in their best interest, of course. So I guess the same thing is, uh, can be applicable to the environment as well and uh, um, natural resources. So... Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I personally, my family personally suffered from that because mm-hmm. we've lost contact with Taragi, you know, Hanapsen. It's, it's very difficult to get to Hanapsen. Yeah. Um, and the, the livelihood that my family had from that. So there is direct impact to the, the control by another, by our colonizers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Joni? Yeah. Um, so, so one thing that um, to me is really important is... Um, it's it's education if you bring the young people in and to show that what what we have like you said in the in the forests and the oceans and all of that i think they start to realize it um or develop a sense of stewardship ownership mm-hmm. and I, I think that's really key to understanding that they can they can actually have a, a say in how this goes um uh and i think we're seeing uh, indigenous people worldwide kind of standing up to yeah. colonizers, right? Mm-hmm. And I, 
I just see I just see that this this is really immense and um, I think we can get our derive our energy and motivation from seeing other people do this. Yeah. For instance, I'm really watching Sand, Standing Rock a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. And, uh, activists in South America as well. But um, I and 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 the reason why I think that's really important this education and awareness and stewardship is because I that's how I found my stewardship my ownership is I went into the forest mm-hmm. and I I figured out the plants and. Um, developed uh, these tours and these lesson plans and just just fell in love with mm-hmm. with the forest that way it fell in love with the reef that way i mean i have a, a master's that i got at marine lab and i think i was already in love with the ocean <laughs> it's just that after after learning a bit about what i'm seeing you you know if you learn the species you know the mm-hmm. genus and species names yeah. of things that you see and even if you know the the loc the chamorro name you know that's another thing I I bring up you know so if they don't have to they don't have to memorize the scientific name if they know the the local name I'm like oh I'm happy yeah. <laughs> let's let's go that way too so I think of you know just that little bit of understanding and knowing I think goes a goes a long way to developing that that sense of you know, this is mine, and and or, or islands, and and I'm, I want to take care of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This yeah. goes hand in hand with also the Northern Mariana Islands. So, um, I was actually very fortunate to go to Tinian and go into the forest there and see the 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 different birds that we've we've lost. In addition to their endemic birds, the Tinian monarch, their ground mm-hmm. ground doves, um, mm-hmm. the the fruit dove, the fruit dove, as well as uh, Tinihi and the Tutut. Yeah. Um, the Chicharica, I mean, I got mm-hmm. to experience all that, and it's just, um, it's sad that we've lost these. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this is what's uh, at stake for the, the people in Tinian and, you know, all of us in the, in the Mariana Islands. Um, and, you know, I would, you know, if I had, um, you know, if money were no object, I would bring people up to Tinian yeah. to see this, to experience the birds. The birds are, are really a big part of our forest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm, I've never been to Tinian. I've been to Saipan um, in the past uh, maybe three years or so. But um, uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, less or more developed than Saipan, Tinian. Um, but, well, I know they, they destroyed a lot of the forest up uh, there. But I know, the I mean, bef- during World War II times, mm-hmm. um, but the, the remaining forest, I felt that there was compared, well, I've been to Rota, the Rota Forest, and as well as Tinian Forest. And... Um, I was able to see more diversity of birds in Tinian, yeah. um, but I, I do appreciate, um, you know, the birds of, of, of all the islands. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was just amazing. I was in, in just in a small area. I can see all of these birds, mm-hmm. which was really great. Yeah, when, and, I, when I was there in Saipan, um, that's one of the things that, that blew my mind again is that, um, you know, we were walking to uh, one of the, the more um, highly visited caves, uh, do you guys know what I'm, which one I'm talking about? The grotto, not the, grotto. the no, not the grotto. Um, in Saipan. In Saipan, oh, yeah. Gosh. Uh, okay, so I I don't remember, but um, there there are um, there's paintings there, there's caves paintings, and um, but just you know the trail there, walking through the forest, uh, you know I stop to close my eyes and you can, it's so it's audible, like you can hear the difference, mm-hmm. uh, the birds. Uh, yeah, it was it was a it was amazing for me, and uh, coming back, it was something that I missed mm-hmm. as well. And um, right. yeah, just right. being able to imagine that Guam should be like that, mm-hmm. like we were. That's how our jungles were 
up until very recently. And, um, you know, that's how it should be, you know. Well, that, that brought to mind another uh, point about the firing range, is that initially the critical habitat area was established as well to... Um, to also try uh, once Guam gets a handle on the on the brown tree snake, mm-hmm. eradicates it from the island. Um, that habitat would be ready for to reintroduce birds mm-hmm. from the other island. So uh, this just blows my mind that they would destroy this place that was supposed to be set up to bring back the birds. Yeah, yeah um, that just doesn't make any <laughs> sense at all. And um, and and the other thing is, um, Sabina mentioned that that. Um, well, so they started looking at um, um, this area for the for the firing range and didn't look much else at other uh, possible areas. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, they didn't look outside of the Marianas as well. So, so that um, that's that's one issue that Earth Justice is also trying to to um, push is. You didn't really try hard <laughs> yeah. at all to look at other places, other places that have been damaged already mm-hmm. why why do something to to pristine areas like Pagan and mm-hmm. and Ritidian? yeah I hate to to beat a, a dead horse but um one of the critiques that I've heard is that um you know they love that Guam is a ter- the, the administration loves that Guam is a territory because they can do things here that they can't do in uh in states and in uh international sovereign sovereign countries so yeah, yeah. it's also one of the critiques is that it's in their best interests because of things like the buildup that they can exercise things that they wouldn't be able to do anywhere else because we're a colony. There are less hoops to yeah. to jump through. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, uh, but, but yeah. I can also talk about other movements. So the Mauna Kea, the the mountain that they're trying to build a thirty uh, meter telescope, and um, uh, the activists, uh, one of the activists, um, Pua Case. And I really like her perspective. She goes, she doesn't give any mind to the telescope because it doesn't, it's not, they're not going to build it. So in some ways, we have to believe that this is not going to happen. And um, rather than try to fight something, mm. you know, let's, let's imagine it not yeah. happening. Wow. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that reminds me of something I said on, I think, the first episode of this show is that, uh, you know, invoking the uh, the metaphysical. So um, uh, our people, Native people, are very spiritual. Um, and there, there's always an element of spirituality in whatever culture. But uh, I think uh, capitalism and, um, you know, modern industrialized society tries to make us forget those things. But um, the power of, um, of imagination and... Uh, putting your thoughts out there into the universe and in solidarity with others. I mean, just look at the, the Standing Rock movement. There's uh, the Native American uh, element is, is uh, highly present, and uh, it's always at the forefront of whatever you're seeing uh, on the news. And I think that that, that might actually do something. Um, and one of the things I said on this first episode was uh, if we can imagine a Guam uh, that was independent, you know, if we if we can all think if we can all imagine that in solidarity, then, you know, who knows what, what sort of energy that puts out into the universe and what we can invoke then. So, yeah, definitely um, uh, acknowledging that um, the military will not take Latexin. If we can get people to to believe that if you can, if you're listening to this and you can believe that uh, you have a right to and you have the power to determine what the military can and can't do. 
And if we can all uh, come to a consensus that they should not and they will not take Latexin, then that's certainly helpful too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, we're, we're coming up short on time. Uh, we've actually been here for, we've been recording for about an hour, so good job. But um, I want to talk uh, about um, other movements that are going on uh, now as well. Of course, there's a Save Southern Guam. Guam or Guam? Uh, Save Southern Guam. Save mm -hmm. Southern Guam. And you guys have a, a Facebook presence. Yes, and, we um, do. Yes. And you guys have a, had a wave today, right? Yes, last night. Last night. Yeah, okay. 4.30 to 6, yeah. Well, mm -hmm. okay. So what, what's the status with, with that? Um, if you guys aren't familiar, Save Southern Guam is, uh, is uh, a movement to protect uh, Pago Bay and to protect uh, uh, the southern areas of Guam from um, uh, economic development, or not economic development, but um, like tourism. Development. Runaway development, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, you want to give a, a brief intro to, to the issues there? I mean, like you said, um, uh, mentioning to your students, like the land and the sea are connected. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so, so, so Save Southern Guam um, initially started because of the Pago, what we call the Pago Bay Towers mm -hmm. that, are, that they're trying to build. And um, a lot of people were not aware of that this was actually going on because um, the messages from the Guam Land Use Commission were just, were, were, let's say, they didn't reach a lot of people. People were, go were all of a sudden surprised, what, this is going to go up in, our, in front of us? Um, and um, a lot of us thought that it's just going to be... Um, how how do I say ruin the aesthetic of the bay? Okay, it's, we see it as a gateway to the south. Um, so this so uh, involved in that group is um, in a big way is Dr. Diane Strong, and she's actually what I would call our FOIA lady. She has been instrumental in just getting all the documents that she can out of um, Guam Land News, the Guam Land News Commission, and any other agencies that are involved in this. And we've kind of put together a big, shall we say, I want to say dossier or file, yeah. a file. Um, but that also, um, it uncovered a lot of um, uh, issues with, with the way that the developer was going about the project. So, for instance, there's a cultural thing. They, the, the remains of, uh, that were uncovered have not been returned. Ancestral remains mm -hmm. have not been either returned or there's, there was, they were supposed to actually do a ceremony. Um, there's still somewhere in UOG, I'm not sure, on a shelf. Wow. Yeah, so that's been 10 years now running, something like that. Um, there's the issue uh, they didn't do, for instance, a, um, a traffic study. Uh, we know that's a really that's that's a big bottleneck in the morning and and, and in the evening. Mm -hmm. um, what would adding, I think close to I think the capacity might be close to 900 people in that little area. What, the, what would that be like? Yeah. There's also the infrastructure question. Those those things were not um, adequately addressed by the developer. So now there's a suit uh, against uh, Wanfang, uh, say Wanfang Corporation and the Guam Land Use Commission for approving the project. And as it stands now, what they've done is approve the, the towers. They're originally going to be 14 and 15 stories, but now then they decreased it to 10 and 11 stories, I think, hoping that that might, might be a compromise. Mm. But uh, we didn't see it at all as a compromise because it still went against uh, the, um, the limit mm. the, that's established by law 
along the seashore, you're only supposed to have three three story buildings. That's that's why in on the bay is only three yeah. stories high. Um, okay, so, so the other major issue is that they don't have the correct zoning uh, permit. So right now it's a an R2 zone, and they are trying to build, essentially build a hotel. Mm-hmm. And you can only build a hotel in a hotel zone. And so they have, now to get an H zone or a hotel zone, that requires many more steps to follow, hoops to, to, to jump through. Yeah, it's more expensive, okay. Yeah. So although I think the suit is getting expensive for them um, and the delay, uh, but in any case, if, if we see this, um, if they're allowed to build uh, 10 and 11-story uh, towers in an R2 zone, that opens up development along the coast for others who want to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think anybody that we've talked to really wants that to happen. Yeah. Residents in the South... Um, We've we have people coming up and saying, really, we, you know, we're glad you're doing this yeah. for the island. I don't. They they want their quali- quality of life to to not be affected in that way. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's the aesthetics of having towers along the coastline. Um, so ten and eleven stories in that area uh, is also a problem because uh, there's also a wetland. Um, there's a river that runs right there, the Pago River. Um, and I think a third of the property is is wetland. Mm-hmm. So they're gonna if they if they do something to that wetland area, they're gonna have to do some mitigation. Uh, but it wasn't really clear how they were gonna go about doing that. And I think for what they've done is they've actually hired uh, a consultant to help them to design um, um, a plan to to deal with the wetland issue which is fine it's just that we we really just are just protesting that 10 and 11 story deal um okay so the status is we there was a court date this week uh tuesday but the judge wasn't satisfied with the briefs he had i guess the information he wanted to make sure that before he makes a decision on the suit that he has everything so i um, I don't know if, a, if the next court date has been set. I, I didn't hear that yet. Mm-hmm. We weren't able to meet this week to to get the briefing, you know, what went, went on in the hearing, but uh, or the, all the details. But um, uh, it's still it's still ongoing. The suit is still ongoing. Yeah. By no way is it has it gone away. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think this is a lot. Save the city in. But I just want to add that it's interesting how you have this. Um, two types of developments, the military development, and you have development outside the fences, Mm -hmm. right? And to me, every time I see destruction of any kind of greenery, um, north or south, um, it just, it really affects me because, you know, why are we destroying our green space? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we know the effect of, of, of concrete, concrete jungles, right? We're affecting our own environment. I mean, why can't we produce a coherent development plan where we're not going to destroy any more green spaces, especially along the eastern side. I mean, um, there, there, uh, basically there, there's plans to, uh, what is it, use the cascal, like do more blasting. I mean, that, that's, you know, that has to be questioned, not just the developments within the base, but outside the base. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're destroying our own environment. Uh, we need to take a critical look at both. Um, 
and we need to protect the, our green spaces, period. And uh, right now, I think the way the laws are, it's, it, there's nothing really to, um, you know, regulate that. You know, it's almost free-for-all. I feel like it's a free-for-all in Guam. And, you know, if we don't speak up, you know, we're going to destroy our commons. This is the tragedy of the commons. You know, we don't protect it. In, in effect, it, it eventually uh, it has consequences in our survival. So um, we need to be as vocal of what's happening within the base as well as outside the base um, for many reasons. Um, is there anything else that you guys want to add? Or, uh... No, I think that what she said is very important. Um, we have to look at um, development outside the bases. Uh, private uh, it's hard to regulate um, a private owner's decision to take his land and have it gouged out for Cascahu and limestone um, and I know that's going to happen next to the Anal conservation area there's there is an area that's conser that's considered conservation area by um, the Department of Agriculture the Forestry Division and um, but if and so you walk beyond a, a gate that says private property and turn to the right it's conservation area to the left it's the private property that's gonna turn into a quarry <laughs> and that's pristine pristine land i think um forest it might some of it might be pristine forest not all of it i think it might have been farmed in the past but and we i mean I, we've heard about the the uh, land near next to the raceway, and I'm yeah. pretty sure that was Chamorro Land Trust land. Yes, and yes, a lot of this yes. is happening on uh, public lands too. Mm -hmm. So I mean, we have more control there, yeah. and I believe some of the regulations were passed uh, in the last legislature. And I remember making the demands: Can we stop this? Can can there be a moratorium on on destroying? The, the land itself because again you know, mm -hmm. can't bring back the limestone forest once you destroy it um, but I was met with um, apathy mm -hmm. by the senator that I spoke with so um, yeah I think the regulations need to, to protect those resources yeah. when, when as you were speaking I was thinking about uh, um, the Tolkien world you know and of course there's uh, there's the dwarves who uh, mine the exhaust they're uh, their natural resources they they dig and dig and dig and obviously there's a uh, there's parallels to be drawn with uh, humanity and it's just it's it's almost absurd you know that um uh organizations administrations um people are so uh are so quick to destroy that which is so vital to us so right. and a part of it's like the political cycle um they're yeah. saying that a lot of our environmental protections is long-term, but the political cycle is a short-term mm -hmm. cycle. So um, the the bias towards legislation that would have long-term effects is not as great as what's going to affect them, what's going to benefit politicians in the short term. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of built into the system, unfortunately. But, you know, people have to speak out. Yeah. And, of course, like we were saying, education. Education is so vital to all this and being able to make those connections and uh, uh, bring it into public consciousness. So I want to thank you, you ladies, for coming here. Um, it, I think this is, it's so important that you guys are here because uh, as, uh, as academics, as scientists, as teachers, uh, sometimes there's, there's the critique that, um, you know, what, what use is, is academia and what use is knowledge if it's not being applied? Uh, Hanani K. Trask, the uh, longtime Hawaiian activist, um, she said about culture, you know, if uh, your cultural practice isn't political, then what use is it? You know, so 
the sciences, uh, the humanities, um, I think we're all coming together in a way that's constructive and a way that uh, um, helps bring justice to uh, the people of Guam. Thank you. Fenatsu is created by the Media Committee of Independent Guahan. Independent Guahan's mission is to empower the Chamorro people to reclaim their sovereignty as a nation. Inspired by the strength of their ancestors and with the love for future generations, they seek to educate and unify all who call Guam home in order to build a sustainable and prosperous independent future. Feedback and questions can be sent to independentguahan at gmail.com, all one word. For more information, head to www.independentguahan.com or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Ihinengainga independent guahan, araba inafanatanga yaman tomorrow, pautatuli tati diretota como unashon, gihilutano, giniminet good niha yamanata, tani guinezata nui famagum tamotna, in a kekefan manungo, tan a kekefanet don todu itot of siha, ni manyasagagi in in a tonu, pautanat let fetna ita guahan, ni todu in in a senata, kosiki senior tafan latla maulik motna, fanatsu, hita latmon.